BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. The Man Who Was Thursday, Chapter 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Man Who Was Thursday, A Nightmare by G. K. Chesterton. Read by Zachary Brewstergeist, April 2007, Waterbury, Connecticut. Chapter 6. THE EXPOSURE Such were the six men who had sworn to destroy the world. Again and again Symes strove to pull together his common sense in their presence. Sometimes he saw for an instant that these notions were subjective, that he was only looking at ordinary men, one of whom was old, another nervous, another short-sighted. The sense of an unnatural symbolism always settled back on him again. Each figure seemed to be somehow on the borderland of things, just as their theory was on the borderland of thought. He knew that each one of these men stood at the extreme end, so to speak, of some wild road of reasoning. He could only fancy, as in some old-world fable, that if a man went westward to the end of the world he would find something, say a tree, that was more or less than a tree, a tree possessed by a spirit and that if he went east to the end of the world he would find something else that was not wholly itself a tower, perhaps, of which the very shape was wicked. So these figures seemed to stand up, violent and unaccountable, against an ultimate horizon, visions from the verge. The ends of the earth were closing in. Talk had been going on steadily as he took in the scene, and not the least of the contrasts of that bewildering breakfast-table was the contrast between the easy and unobtrusive tone of talk and its terrible purport. They were deep in the discussion of an actual and immediate plot. The waiter downstairs had spoken quite correctly when he said that they were talking about bombs and kings. Only three days afterwards the Tsar was to meet the President of the French Republic in Paris, and over their bacon and eggs upon their sunny balcony these beaming gentlemen had decided how both should die. Even the instrument was chosen. The black-bearded Marquis, it appeared, was to carry the bomb. 
Ordinarily speaking, the proximity of this positive and objective crime would have sobered Syme, and cured him of all his merely mystical tremors. He would have thought of nothing but the need of saving at least two human bodies from being ripped in pieces with iron and roaring gas. But the truth was that by this time he had begun to feel a third kind of fear, more piercing and practical than either his moral revulsion or his social responsibility. Very simply, he had no fear to spare for the French president or the Tsar. He had begun to fear for himself. Most of the talkers took little heed of him, debating now with their faces closer together and almost uniformly grave, save when for an instant the smile of the secretary ran aslant across his face as the jagged lightning runs aslant across the sky. But there was one persistent thing which first troubled Syme and at last terrified him. The president was always looking at him, steadily, and with a great and baffling interest. The enormous man was quite quiet, but his blue eyes stood out of his head, and they were always fixed on Syme. Syme felt moved to spring up and leap over the balcony. When the president's eyes were on him, he felt as if he were made of glass. He had hardly the shred of a doubt that in some silent and extraordinary way Sunday had found out that he was a spy. He looked over the edge of the balcony and saw a policeman standing abstractedly just beneath, staring at the bright railings and the sunlit trees. Then there fell upon him the great temptation that was to torment him for many days. In the presence of these powerful and repulsive men, who were the princes of anarchy, he had almost forgotten the frail and fanciful figure of the poet Gregory, the mere aesthete of anarchism. He even thought of him now with an old kindness, as if they had played together when children. But he remembered that he was still tied to Gregory by a great promise. He had promised never to do the very thing that he now felt himself almost in the act of doing. He had promised not to jump over that balcony and speak to that policeman. He took his cold hand off the cold stone balustrade. His soul swayed in a vertigo of moral indecision. He had only to snap the thread of a rash vow made to a villainous society, and all his life could be as open and sunny as the square beneath him. He had, on the other hand, only to keep his antiquated honor and be delivered inch by inch into the power of this great enemy of mankind, whose very intellect was a torture-chamber. Whenever he looked down into the square, he saw the comfortable policeman, a pillar of common sense and common order. Whenever he looked back at the breakfast-table, he saw the President still quietly studying him with big, unbearable eyes. In all the torrent of his thought there were two thoughts that never crossed his mind. First, it never occurred to him to doubt that the President and his counsel could crush him if he continued to stand alone. The place might be public, the project might seem impossible. But Sunday was not the man who would carry himself thus easily, without having, somehow or somewhere, set open his iron trap. Either by anonymous poison, or sudden street accident, by hypnotism, or by fire from hell, Sunday could certainly strike him. If he defied the man he was probably dead, either struck stiff there in his chair, or long afterwards as by an innocent ailment. If he called in the police promptly, arrested every one, told all, and set against them the whole energy of England, he would probably escape. Certainly not otherwise. They were a balcony full of gentlemen overlooking a bright and busy square. 
but he felt no more safe with them than if they had been a boatful of armed pirates overlooking an empty sea. There was a second thought that never came to him. It never occurred to him to be spiritually won over to the enemy. Many moderns, inured to a weak worship of intellect and force, might have wavered in their allegiance under this oppression of a great personality. They might have called Sunday the Superman. If any such creature be conceivable, he looked, indeed, somewhat like it, with his earth-shaking abstraction as of a stone statue walking. He might have been called something above man, with his large plans, which were too obvious to be detected, with his large face, which was too frank to be understood. But this was a kind of modern meanness to which Syme could not sink, even in his extreme morbidity. Like any man, he was coward enough to fear great force, but he was not quite coward enough to admire it. The men were eating as they talked, and even in this they were typical. Dr. Bull and the Marquis ate casually and conventionally of the best things on the table, cold pheasant or Strasbourg pie. But the secretary was a vegetarian, and he spoke earnestly of the projected murder over half a raw tomato and three-quarters of glass of tepid water. The old professor had such slops as suggested a sickening second childhood. And even in this President Sunday preserved his curious predominance of mere mass, for he ate like twenty men. He ate incredibly, with a frightful freshness of appetite, so that it was like watching a sausage factory. Yet continually, when he had swallowed a dozen crumpets, or drunk a quart of coffee, he would be found with his great head on one side, staring at Syme. "'I have often wondered,' said the Marquis, taking a great bite out of a slice of bread and jam, "'whether it wouldn't be better for me to do it with a knife.' Most of the best things have been brought off with a knife, and it would be a new emotion to get a knife into a French president and wriggle it round. "'You are wrong,' said the secretary, drawing his black brows together. "'The knife was merely the expression of the old personal quarrel with a personal tyrant. Dynamite is not only our best tool, but our best symbol. It is as perfect a symbol of us as incense is of the prayers of the Christians. It expands.' It only destroys because it broadens. Even so, thought only destroys because it broadens. A man's brain is a bomb, he cried out, loosening suddenly his strange passion and striking his own skull with violence. My brain feels like a bomb, night and day. It must expand. It must expand. A man's brain must expand if it breaks up the universe. I don't want the universe broken up just yet, drawled the Marquis. I want to do a lot of beastly things before I die. I thought of one yesterday in bed. No, if the only end of the thing is nothing, said Dr. Bull with his sphinx-like smile, it hardly seems worth doing. The old professor was staring at the ceiling with dull eyes. Every man knows in his heart, he said, that nothing is worth doing. There was a singular silence, and then the secretary said, we are wandering, however, from the point. The only question is how Wednesday is to strike the blow. I take it we should all agree with the original notion of a bomb. As to the actual arrangements, I should suggest that tomorrow morning he should go first of all to— The speech was broken off short under a vast shadow. President Sunday had risen to his feet, seeming to fill the sky above them. Before we discuss that— he said in a small, quiet voice, "'Let us go into a private room. 
I have something very particular to say. Syme stood up before any of the others. The instant of choice had come at last. The pistol was at his head. On the pavement before he could hear the policeman idly stir and stamp, for the morning, though bright, was cold. A barrel organ in the street suddenly sprang with a jerk into a jovial tune. Syme stood up taut, as if it had been a bugle before the battle. He found himself filled with a supernatural courage that came from nowhere. That jingling music seemed full of the vivacity, the vulgarity, and the irrational valor of the poor, who in all those unclean streets were all clinging to the decencies and the charities of Christendom. His youthful prank of being a policeman had faded from his mind. He did not think of himself as the representative of the corps of gentlemen turned into fancy constables, or of the old eccentric who lived in the dark room. But he did feel himself as the ambassador of all these common and kindly people in the street who every day marched into the battle to the music of the barrel-organ and this high pride in being human had lifted him unaccountably to an infinite height above the monstrous men around him. For an instant, at least, he looked down upon all their sprawling eccentricities from the starry pinnacle of the commonplace. He felt towards them all that unconscious and elementary superiority that a brave man feels over powerful beasts or a wise man over powerful errors. He knew that he had neither the intellectual nor the physical strength of President Sunday, but in that moment he minded it no more than the fact that he had not the muscles of a tiger or a horn on his nose like a rhinoceros. All was swallowed up in an ultimate certainty that the President was wrong and that the barrel-organ was right. There clanged in his mind that unanswerable and terrible truism in the Song of Roland. Pagan en peur et chrétien en droit, which in the old nasal French has the clang and groan of great iron. This liberation of his spirit from the load of his weakness went with a quite clear decision to embrace death. If the people of the barrel organ could keep their old world obligations, so could he. This very pride in keeping his word was that he was keeping it to miscreants. It was his last triumph over these lunatics to go down into their dark room and die for something that they could not even understand. The barrel-organ seemed to give the marching tune with the energy and the mingled noises of a whole orchestra, and he could hear deep and rolling under all the trumpets of the pride of life the drums of the pride of death. The conspirators were already filling through the open window and into the rooms behind. Syme went last, outwardly calm, but with all his brain and body throbbing with romantic rhythm. The President led them down an irregular side-stair, such as might be used by servants, and into a dim, cold, empty room, with a table and benches, like an abandoned boardroom. When they were all in, he closed and locked the door. The first to speak was Gogol the irreconcilable, who seemed bursting with inarticulate grievance. "'Zo! Zo!' he cried, with an obscure excitement, his heavy Polish accent becoming almost impenetrable. "'You say you not hide. You say you show himself. It is on nothing. When you want talk important, you run yourselves in a dark box.' The President seemed to take the foreigner's incoherent satire with entire good humour. "'You can't get hold of it yet, Goggle,' he said in a fatherly way. "'When once they have heard us talking nonsense on that balcony, "'they will not care where we go afterwards. 
If we had come here first, we should have had the whole staff at the keyhole. You don't seem to know anything about mankind. I die for them, cried the Pole in thick excitement, and I slay their oppressors. I care not for these games of concealment. I would smite the tyrant in the open square. I see, I see, said the President, nodding kindly, as he seated himself at the top of a long table. You die for mankind first, and then you get up and smite their oppressors, so that's all right. And now may I ask you to control your beautiful sentiments, and sit down with the other gentlemen at this table. For the first time this morning something intelligent is going to be said. Syme, with the perturbed promptitude he had shown since the original summons, sat down first. Gogol sat down last, grumbling in his brown beard about gombromise. No one except Syme seemed to have any notion of the blow that was about to fall. As for him, he had merely the feeling of a man mounting the scaffold with the intention, at any rate, of making a good speech. "'Comrades,' said the President, suddenly rising, "'we have spun out this farce long enough. I have called you down here to tell you so simple and shocking that even the waiters upstairs, long inured to our levities, might hear some new seriousness in my voice. Comrades, we were discussing plans and naming places. I propose, before saying anything else, that those plans and places should not be voted by this meeting, but should be left wholly in the control of some one reliable member. I suggest Comrade Saturday, Dr. Bull. They all stared at him. Then they all started in their seats, for the next words, though not loud, had a living and sensational emphasis. Sunday struck the table. Not one word more about the plans and places must be said at this meeting. Not one tiny detail more about what we mean to do must be mentioned in this company. Sunday had spent his life in astonishing his followers, but it seemed as if he had never really astonished them until now. They all moved feverishly in their seats, except Syme. He sat stiff in his, with his hand in his pocket, and on the handle of his loaded revolver. When the attack on him came, he would sell his life dear. He would find out at least if the President was mortal. Sunday went on smoothly. You will probably understand that there is only one possible motive for forbidding free speech at this festival of freedom. Strangers overhearing us matters nothing. They assume that we are joking. But what would matter, even unto death, is this, that there should be one actually among us who is not of us, who knows our grave purpose, but does not share it, who— The secretary screamed out suddenly like a woman. "'It can't be!' he cried, leaping. "'There can't!' The president flapped his large, flat hand on the table like the fin of some huge fish. "'Yes,' he said slowly. "'There is a spy in this room. There is a traitor at this table. I will waste no more words. His name?' Syme half rose from his seat, his finger firm on the trigger. "'His name is Gogol,' said the president. He is that hairy humbug over there who pretends to be a Pole. Gogol sprang to his feet, a pistol in each hand. 
With the same flash three men sprang at his throat. Even the professor made an effort to rise. But Syme saw little of the scene, for he was blinded with a beneficent darkness. He had sunk down into his seat shuddering, in a palsy of passionate relief. End of chapter 6《The Man Who Was Thursday》Chapter 7 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Man Who Was Thursday A Nightmare by G. K. Chesterton. Read by Zachary Brewster Geis, Greenbelt, Maryland, April 2007. Chapter 7 the unaccountable conduct of Professor de Worms. "'Sit down,' said Sunday, in a voice that he used once or twice in his life, a voice that made men drop drawn swords. The three who had risen fell away from Gogol, and that equivocal person himself resumed his seat. "'Well, my man,' said the President briskly, addressing him as one addresses a total stranger, "'Will you oblige me by putting your hand in your upper waistcoat pocket "'and showing me what you have there?' "'The alleged Pole was a little pale under his tangle of dark hair, "'but he put two fingers into the pocket with apparent coolness "'and pulled out a blue strip of card. "'When Syme saw it lying on the table, "'he woke up again to the world outside him, "'for although the card lay at the other extreme of the table "'and he could read nothing of the inscription on it, it bore a startling resemblance to the blue card in his own pocket, the card which had been given to him when he joined the anti-anarchist constabulary. "'Pathetic Slav,' said the President, "'tragic child of Poland, are you prepared in the presence of that card to deny that you are in this company? Shall we say, de "'Right-o,' said the late Gogol. It made everyone jump to hear a clear, commercial, and somewhat cockney voice coming out of that forest of foreign hair. It was irrational, as if a Chinaman had suddenly spoken with a Scotch accent. "'I gather that you fully understand your position,' said Sunday. "'You bet,' answered the Pole. "'I see it's a fair cop. All I say is I don't believe any Pole could have imitated my accent like I did his.' "'I concede the point,' said Sunday. I believe your own accent to be inimitable, though I shall practice it in my bath. Do you mind leaving your beard with your card? Not a bit, answered Gogol, and with one finger he ripped off the whole of his shaggy head covering, emerging with thin red hair and a pale pert face. It was hot, he added. I will do you the justice to say, said Sunday, not without a sort of brutal admiration, that you seem to have kept pretty cool under it. Now listen to me. I like you. The consequence is that it would annoy me for just about two and a half minutes if I heard that you had died in torments. Well, if you ever tell the police or any human soul about us, I shall have that two and a half minutes of discomfort. On your discomfort I will not dwell. Good day. Mind the step. The red-haired detective, who had masqueraded as Gogol, rose to his feet without a word, 
and walked out of the room with an air of perfect nonchalance. Yet the astonished Syme was able to realize that this ease was suddenly assumed, for there was a slight stumble outside the door which showed that the departing detective had not minded the step. "'Time is flying,' said the President in his gayest manner, after glancing at his watch, which, like everything about him, seemed bigger than it ought to be. "'I must go off at once. I have to take the chair at a humanitarian meeting.' The secretary turned to him with working eyebrows. "'Would it not be better,' he said a little sharply, "'to discuss further the details of our project, now that the spy has left us?' "'No, I think not,' said the President, with a yawn like an unobtrusive earthquake. "'Leave it as it is. Let Saturday settle it. I must be off. Breakfast here next Sunday.' But the late Laodiceans had whipped up the almost naked nerves of the secretary. He was one of those men who are conscientious even in crime. "'I must protest, President, that the thing is irregular,' he said. "'It is a fundamental rule of our society that all plans shall be debated in full council. Of course I fully appreciate your forethought when in the actual presence of a traitor.' secretary said the president seriously if you take your head home and boil it for a turnip it might be useful i can't say but it might the secretary reared back in a kind of equine anger i really fail to understand he began in high offence that's it that's it said the president nodding a great many times that's where you fail right enough you fail to understand "'Why, you dancing donkey!' he roared, rising. "'You didn't want to be overheard by a spy, didn't you? "'How do you know you aren't overheard now?' And with these words he shouldered his way out of the room, shaking with incomprehensible scorn. Four of the men left behind gaped after him without any apparent glimmering of his meaning. Syme alone had even a glimmering, and such as it was, it froze him to the bone. If the last words of the President meant anything, they meant that he had not after all passed unsuspected. They meant that while Sunday could not denounce him like Gogol, he still could not trust him like the others. The other four got to their feet grumbling more or less, and betook themselves elsewhere to find lunch, for it was already well past midday. The Professor went last very slowly and painfully. Syme sat long after the rest had gone, revolving his strange position. He had escaped a thunderbolt, but he was still under a cloud. At last he rose and made his way out of the hotel into Leicester Square. The bright, cold day had grown increasingly colder, and when he came out into the street he was surprised by a few flakes of snow. While he still carried the sword-stick and the rest of Gregory's portable luggage, he had thrown the cloak down and left it somewhere, perhaps on the steam-tug, perhaps on the balcony. Hoping, therefore, that the snow-shower might be slight, he stepped back out of the street for a moment, and stood up under the doorway of a small and greasy hairdresser's shop, the front window of which was empty, except for a sickly wax lady in evening dress. Snow, however, was beginning to thicken and fall fast, and Syme, having found one glance at the wax lady quite sufficient to depress his spirits, stared out instead into the white and empty street. He was considerably astonished to see, standing quite still outside the shop and staring into the window, a man. His top hat was loaded with snow, like the hat of Father Christmas. The white drift was rising round his boots and ankles, but it seemed as if nothing could tear him away, 
from the contemplation of the colorless wax doll in dirty evening dress. That any human being could stand in such weather looking into such a shop was a matter of sufficient wonder to Syme, but his idle wonder turned suddenly into a personal shock, for he realized that the man standing there was the paralytic old Professor de Worms. It scarcely seemed the place for a person of his years and infirmities. Syme was ready to believe anything about the perversions of this dehumanized brotherhood, but even he could not believe that the professor had fallen in love with that particular wax lady. He could only suppose that the man's malady, whatever it was, involved some momentary fits of rigidity or trance. He was not inclined, however, to feel in this case any very compassionate concern. On the contrary, he rather congratulated himself that the professor's stroke and his elaborate and limping walk would make it easy to escape from him, and leave him miles behind. For Syme thirsted first and last to get clear of the whole poisonous atmosphere, if only for an hour. Then he could collect his thoughts, formulate his policy, and decide finally whether he should or should not keep faith with Gregory. He strolled away through the dancing snow, turned up two or three streets, down through two or three others, and entered a small Soho restaurant for lunch. He partook reflectively of four small and quaint courses, drank half a bottle of red wine, and ended up over black coffee and a black cigar, still thinking. He had taken his seat in the upper room of the restaurant, which was full of the chink of knives and the chatter of foreigners. He remembered that in old days he'd imagined that all these harmless and kindly aliens were anarchists. He shuddered, remembering the real thing. But even the shudder had the delightful shame of escape. The wine, the common food, the familiar place, the faces of natural and talkative men, made him almost feel as if the Council of the Seven Days had been a bad dream. And although he knew it was nevertheless an objective reality, it was at least a distant one. Tall houses and populous streets lay between him and his last sight of the shameful seven. He was free in free London, and drinking wine among the free. With a somewhat easier action, he took his hat and stick, and strolled down the stair into the shop below. When he entered that lower room, he stood stricken and rooted to the spot. At a small table, close up to the blank window in the white street of snow, sat the old anarchist professor over a glass of milk, with his lifted, livid face and pendant eyelids. For an instant, Syme stood as rigid as the stick he leant upon. Then, with a gesture as of blind hurry, he brushed past the professor, dashing open the door and slamming it behind him, and stood outside in the snow. "'Can that old corpse be following me?' he asked himself, biting his yellow moustache. "'I stopped too long up in that room so that even such leaden feet could catch me up. One comfort is, with a little brisk walking I can put a man like that as far away as Timbuktu. Oh, am I too fanciful? Was he really following me?' Surely Sunday would not be such a fool as to send a lame man. He set off at a smart pace, twisting and whirling his stick in the direction of Covent Garden. As he crossed the great market, the snow increased, growing blinding and bewildering as the afternoon began to darken. The snowflakes tormented him like a swarm of silver bees. Getting into his eyes and beard, they added their unremitting futility to his already irritated nerves. And by the time that he had come at a swinging pace, to the beginning of Fleet Street, he lost patience, and finding a Sunday tea-shop, turned into it to take shelter. 
he ordered another cup of black coffee as an excuse. Scarcely had he done so when Professor de Worms hobbled heavily into the shop, sat down with difficulty, and ordered a glass of milk. Syme's walking-stick had fallen from his hand with a great clang which confessed the concealed steel. But the professor did not look round. Syme, who was commonly a cool character, was literally gasping as a rustic gapes at a conjuring trick. He had seen no cab following. He had heard no wheels outside the shop. To all mortal appearances the man had come on foot. But the old man could only walk like a snail, and Syme had walked like the wind. He started up and snatched the stick, half crazy with the contradiction in mere arithmetic, and swung out of the swinging doors, leaving his coffee untasted. An omnibus going to the bank went rattling by with an unusual rapidity. He had a violent run of a hundred yards to reach it, but he managed to spring, swaying upon the splashboard, and, pausing for an instant to pant, he climbed on to the top. When he had been seated for about half a minute, he heard behind him a sort of heavy and asthmatic breathing. Turning sharply, he saw rising gradually higher and higher up the omnibus steps, a top hat, soiled and dripping with snow, and under the shadow of its brim the short-sighted face and shaky shoulders of Professor de Worms. He let himself into a seat with characteristic care, and wrapped himself up to the chin in the Macintosh rug. Every movement of the old man's tottering figure and vague hands, every uncertain gesture and panic-stricken pause, seemed to put it beyond question that he was helpless, that he was in the last imbecility of the body. He moved by inches, he let himself down with little gasps of caution, and yet, unless the philosophical entities called time and space have no vestige even of a practical existence, it appeared quite unquestionable that he had run after the omnibus. Syme sprang erect upon the rocking car, and after staring wildly at the wintry sky that grew gloomier every moment, he ran down the steps. He had repressed an elemental impulse to leap over the side. Too bewildered to look back or to reason, he rushed into one of the little courts at the side of Fleet Street, as a rabbit rushes into a hole. He had a vague idea, if this incomprehensible old jack-in-the-box was really pursuing him, that in the labyrinth of little streets he could soon throw him off the scent. He dived in and out of those crooked lanes, which were more like cracks than thoroughfares, and by the time he had completed about twenty alternate angles and described an unthinkable polygon, he paused to listen for any sound of pursuit. There was none. There could not in any case have been much, for the little streets were thick with the soundless snow. Somewhere behind Red Lion Court, however, he noticed a place where some energetic citizen had cleared away the snow for a space of about twenty yards, leaving the wet, glistening cobblestones. He thought little of this as he passed it, only plunging into yet another arm of the maze. But when a few hundred yards farther on, he stood still again to listen. His heart stood still also for he heard from that space of rugged stones the clinking crutch and laboring feet of the infernal cripple. The sky above was loaded with the clouds of snow, leaving London in a darkness and oppression premature for that hour of the evening. On each side of Syme the walls of the alley were blind and featureless. There was no little window or any kind of eve. He felt a new impulse to break out of this hive of houses, and to get once more into the open and lamplit street, yet he rambled and dodged for a long time before he struck the main thoroughfare. When he did so he struck it much farther up than he had fancied. He came out into what seemed the vast and void of Ludgate Circus, 
and saw St. Paul's Cathedral sitting in the sky. At first he was startled to find these great roads so empty, as if a pestilence had swept through the city. Then he told himself that some degree of emptiness was natural, first because the snowstorm was even dangerously deep, and secondly because it was Sunday. And at the very word Sunday he bit his lip. The word was henceforth for hire like some indecent pun. Under the white fog of snow high up in the heaven, the whole atmosphere of the city was turned to a very queer kind of green twilight, as of men under the sea. The sealed and sullen sunset behind the dark dome of St. Paul's had in it smoky and sinister colors, colors of sickly green, dead red or decaying bronze, that were just bright enough to emphasize the solid whiteness of the snow. But right up against those dreary colors rose the black bulk of the cathedral, and upon the top of the cathedral was a random splash and great stain of snow, still clinging as to an alpine peak. It had fallen accidentally, but just so fallen as to half-drape the dome from its very topmost point, and to pick out in perfect silver the great orb and the cross. When Syme saw it, he suddenly straightened himself, and made with his sword-stick an involuntary salute. He knew that that evil figure, his shadow, was creeping quickly or slowly behind him, and he did not care. It seemed a symbol of human faith and valor that while the skies were darkening, that high place of the earth was bright. The devils might have captured heaven, but they had not yet captured the cross. He had a new impulse to tear out the secret of this dancing, jumping, and pursuing paralytic. And at the entrance of the court, as it opened upon the circus, he turned, stick in hand, to face his pursuer. Professor de Worms came slowly round the corner of the irregular alley behind him, his unnatural form outlined against a lonely gas-lamp, irresistibly recalling that very imaginative figure in the nursery rhymes, the crooked man who went a crooked mile. He really looked as if he had been twisted out of shape by the torturous streets he had been threading. He came nearer and nearer, the lamplight shining on his lifted spectacles, his lifted patient face. Syme waited for him as St. George waited for the dragon, as a man waits for a final explanation or for death. And the old professor came right up to him and passed him like a total stranger, without even a blink of his mournful eyelids. There was something in this silent and unexpected innocence that left Syme in a final fury. The man's colorless face and manner seemed to assert that the whole following had been an accident. Syme was galvanized with an energy that was something between bitterness and a burst of boyish derision. He made a wild gesture, as if to knock the old man's hat off, called out something like, "'Catch me if you can!' and went racing away across the white, open circus. Concealment was impossible now, and looking back over his shoulder, he could see the black figure of the old gentleman coming after him with long, swinging strides, like a man winning a mile race. But the head upon that bounding body was still pale, grave, and professional, like the head of a lecturer upon the body of a harlequin. This outrageous chase sped across Ludgate Circus, up Ludgate Hill, round St. Paul's Cathedral, along Cheapside, Syme remembering all the nightmares he had ever known. Then Syme broke away towards the river and ended almost down by the docks. He saw the yellow panes of a low-lighted public house, flung himself into it, and ordered beer. It was a foul tavern, sprinkled with foreign sailors, a place where opium might be smoked or knives drawn. A moment later, 
Professor de Worms entered the place, sat down carefully, and asked for a glass of milk. End of chapter 7「The Man Who Was Thursday, Chapter 8 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Man Who Was Thursday, A Nightmare by G. K. Chesterton Read by Zachary Brewster Geis, Greenbelt, Maryland, April 2007 Chapter 8 the professor explains. When Gabriel Syme found himself finally established in a chair, and opposite to him fixed and final also, the lifted eyebrows and leaden eyelids of the professor, his fears fully returned. This incomprehensible man from the fierce council, after all, had certainly pursued him. If the man had one character as a paralytic and another character as a pursuer, the antithesis might make him more interesting, but scarcely more soothing. It would be a very small comfort that he could not find the professor out if by some serious accident the professor should find him out. He emptied a whole pewter pot of ale before the professor had touched his milk. One possibility, however, kept him hopeful and yet helpless. It was just possible that this escapade signified something other than even a slight suspicion of him. Perhaps it was some regular form or sign. Perhaps the foolish scamper was some sort of friendly signal that he ought to have understood. Perhaps it was a ritual. Perhaps the new Thursday was always chased along Cheapside, as the new Lord Mayor is always escorted along it. He was just selecting a tentative inquiry when the old professor opposite suddenly and simply cut him short. Before Syme could ask the first diplomatic question, the old anarchist had asked suddenly, without any sort of preparation. "'Are you a policeman?' Whatever else Syme had expected, he had never expected anything so brutal and actual as this. Even his great presence of mind could only manage a reply with an air of rather blundering jocularity. "'A policeman!' he said, laughing vaguely. "'Whatever made you think of a policeman in connection with me?' "'The process was simple enough.' answered the professor patiently. I thought you looked like a policeman. I think so now. Did I take a policeman's hat by mistake out of the restaurant? asked Syme, smiling wildly. Have I by any chance got a number stuck on me somewhere? Have my boots got that watchful look? Why must I be a policeman? Do, do let me be a postman. The old professor shook his head with a gravity that gave no hope, but Syme ran on with a feverish irony. But perhaps I misunderstood the delicacies of your German philosophy. Perhaps policeman is a relative term. In an evolutionary sense, sir, the ape fades so gradually into the policeman that I myself can never detect the shade. The monkey is only the policeman that may be. Perhaps a maiden lady on Clapham Common is only the policeman that might have been. I don't mind being the policeman that might have been. I don't mind being anything in German thought. Are you in the police service? said the old man, ignoring all Syme's improvised and desperate raillery. Are you a detective? Syme's heart turned to stone, but his face never changed. Your suggestion is ridiculous, he began. Why on earth? 
The old man struck his palsied hand passionately on the rickety table, nearly breaking it. "'Do you hear me ask a plain question, you pattering spy?' he shrieked in a high, crazy voice. "'Are you or are you not a police detective?' "'No,' answered Syme, like a man standing on the hangman's drop. "'You swear it,' said the old man, leaning across to him, his dead face becoming, as it were, loathsomely alive. "'You swear it! You swear it! If you swear falsely, will you be damned?' Will you be sure that the devil dances at your funeral? Will you see that the nightmare sits on your grave? Will there really be no mistake? You are an anarchist? You are a dynamiter? Above all, you are not in any sense a detective. You are not in the British police. He leant his angular elbow far across the table and put up his large loose hand like a flap to his ear. "'I am not in the British police,' said Syme, with insane calm. Professor de Worms fell back in his chair, with a curious air of kindly collapse. "'That's a pity,' he said. "'Because I am.' Syme sprang up straight, sending back the bench behind him with a crash. "'Because you are what?' he said thickly. "'You are what?' "'I am a policeman.' said the professor, with his first broad smile, and beaming through his spectacles. "'But, as you think policeman only a relative term, of course I have nothing to do with you. I am in the British police force, but as you tell me you are not in the British police force, I can only say that I met you in a dynamiter's club. I suppose I ought to arrest you.' And with these words he laid on the table before Syme an exact facsimile of the blue card which Syme had in his own waistcoat pocket, the symbol of his power from the police. Syme had for a flash the sensation that the cosmos had turned exactly upside down, that all trees were growing downwards and that all stars were under his feet. Then came slowly the opposite conviction. For the last twenty-four hours the cosmos had really been upside down, but now the capsized universe had come right side up again. This devil from whom he had been fleeing all day, was only an elder brother of his own house, who on the other side of the table lay back and laughed at him. He did not for the moment ask any questions of detail. He only knew the happy and silly fact that this shadow, which had pursued him with an intolerable oppression of peril, was only the shadow of a friend trying to catch him up. He knew simultaneously that he was a fool and a free man, for with any recovery from morbidity, there must go a certain healthy humiliation. There comes a certain point in such conditions when only three things are possible. First, a perpetuation of satanic pride, secondly, tears, and third, laughter. Syme's egotism held hard to the first course for a few seconds, and then suddenly adopted the third. Taking his own blue police ticket from his own waistcoat pocket, he tossed it onto the table. Then he flung his head back until his spike of yellow beard almost pointed at the ceiling, and shouted with a barbaric laughter. Even in that close den, perpetually filled with the din of knives, plates, cans, clamorous voices, sudden struggles and stampedes, there was something Homeric in Syme's mirth, which made many half-drunken men look round. "'What you laughing at, governor?' asked one wandering laborer from the docks. 
"'At myself,' answered Syme, and went off again into the agony of his ecstatic reaction. "'Pull yourself together,' said the professor, "'or you'll get hysterical. Have some more beer. I'll join you.' "'You haven't drunk your milk,' said Syme. "'My milk!' said the other, in tones of withering and unfathomable contempt. "'My milk! Do you think I'd look at the beastly stuff when I'm out of sight of the bloody anarchists?' "'We are all Christians in this room, though perhaps,' he added, glancing around at the reeling crowd, "'not strict ones. Finish my milk? Great blazes! Yes, I'll finish it right enough!' And he knocked the tumbler off the table, making a crash of glass and a splash of silver fluid. Syme was staring at him with a happy curiosity. "'I understand now,' he cried. "'Of course you're not an old man at all.' "'I can't take my face off here.' replied Professor de Worms. It's rather an elaborate make-up. As to whether I'm an old man, that's not for me to say. I was thirty-eight last birthday. Yes, but I mean, said Simon patiently, there's nothing the matter with you. Yes, answered the other dispassionately. I am subject to colds. Syme's laughter at all this had about it a wild weakness of relief. He laughed at the idea of the paralytic professor being really a young actor dressed up as if for the footlights, but he felt that he would have laughed as loudly if a pepper-pot had fallen over. The false professor drank and wiped his false beard. "'Did you know,' he asked, "'that that man Gogol was one of us?' "'I? No, I didn't know it,' answered Syme in some surprise. "'But didn't you?' "'I knew no more than the dead.' replied the man who called himself de Worms. I thought the President was talking about me, and I rattled in my boots. And I thought he was talking about me, said Syme, with his rather reckless laughter. I had my hand on my revolver all the time. So had I, said the Professor grimly. So had Gogol, evidently. Syme struck the table with an exclamation. Why, there were three of us there, he cried. Three out of seven is a fighting number. If we had only known that we were three. The face of Professor de Worms darkened, and he did not look up. We were three, he said. If we had been three hundred, we could still have done nothing. Not if we were three hundred against four? asked Syme, jeering rather boisterously. No, said the professor with sobriety. Not if we were three hundred against Sunday and the mere name struck Syme cold and serious. His laughter had died in his heart before it could die on his lips. The face of the unforgettable president sprang into his mind as startling as a colored photograph, and he remarked this difference between Sunday and all his satellites, that their faces, however fierce or sinister, became gradually blurred by memory like other human faces, whereas Sunday's seemed almost to grow more actual during absence, as if a man's painted portrait should slowly come alive. They were both silent for a measure of moments, and then Syme's speech came with a rush, like the sudden foaming of champagne. "'Professor!' he cried. "'It is intolerable. Are you afraid of this man?' The professor lifted his heavy lids, and gazed at Syme with large, wide-open blue eyes of an almost ethereal honesty. "'Yes, I am,' he said mildly. "'So are you.' Syme was dumb for an instant. Then he rose to his feet erect like an insulted man, and thrust the chair away from him. 
"'Yes,' he said in a voice indescribable, "'you are right. I am afraid of him. Therefore I swear by God that I will seek out this man who I fear until I find him and strike him on the mouth.' If heaven were his throne and the earth his footstool, I swear that I would pull him down. How? asked the staring professor. Why? Because I am afraid of him, said Syme, and no man should leave in the universe anything of which he is afraid. De Worms blinked at him with a sort of blind wonder. He made an effort to speak, but Syme went on in a low voice, but with an undercurrent of inhuman exultation. Who would condescend to strike down the mere things that he does not fear? Who would debase himself to be merely brave, like any common prize-fighter? Who would stoop to be fearless, like a tree? Fight the thing that you fear. You remember the old tale of the English clergyman who gave the last rites to the brigand of Sicily, and how on his deathbed the great robber said, I can give you no money, but I can give you advice for a lifetime. Your thumb on the blade and strike upwards. So I say to you, strike upwards if you strike at the stars. The other looked at the ceiling, one of the tricks of his pose. Sunday is a fixed star, he said. You shall see him a falling star, said Syme, and put on his hat. The decision of his gesture drew the professor vaguely to his feet. Have you any idea, he asked, with a sort of benevolent bewilderment, exactly where you are going? "'Yes,' replied Syme shortly. "'I am going to prevent this bomb being thrown in Paris.' "'Have you any conception how?' inquired the other. "'No,' said Syme, with equal decision. "'You remember, of course,' resumed the soi-disant de Worms, pulling his beard and looking out of the window, "'that when we broke up rather hurriedly, the whole arrangements for the atrocity were left in the private hands of the Marquis and Dr. Bull.' The Marquis is by this time probably crossing the channel, but where he will go and what he will do, it is doubtful whether even the President knows. Certainly we don't know. The only man who does know is Dr. Bull. "'Confound it!' cried Syme, and we don't know where he is. "'Yes,' said the other, in his curious, absent-minded way. "'I know where he is myself.' "'Will you tell me?' asked Syme, with eager eyes. "'I will take you there,' said the professor, and took down his own hat from a peg. Syme stood looking at him with a sort of rigid excitement. "'What do you mean?' he asked sharply. "'Will you join me? Will you take the risk?' "'Young man,' said the professor pleasantly, "'I am amused to observe that you think I am a coward. As to that, I will say only one word.' and that shall be entirely in the manner of your own philosophical rhetoric. You think that it is possible to pull down the President. I know that it is impossible, and I am going to try it. And opening the tavern door, which let in a blast of bitter air, they went out together into the dark streets by the docks. Most of the snow was melted or trampled to mud, but here and there a clot of it still showed grey, rather than white, in the gloom. The small streets were sloppy and full of pools, which reflected the flaming lamps irregularly and by accident, like fragments of some other and fallen world. Syme felt almost dazed as he stepped through this growing confusion of lights and shadows. 
but his companion walked on with a certain briskness, towards where, at the end of the street, an inch or two of the lamp-lit river looked like a bar of flame. "'Where are you going?' Syme inquired. "'Just now,' answered the professor. "'I am going just round the corner to see whether Dr. Bull has gone to bed. He is hygienic and retires early.' "'Dr. Bull?' exclaimed Syme. "'Does he live round the corner?' "'No,' answered his friend. "'As a matter of fact, he lives some way off on the other side of the river, but we can tell from here whether he has gone to bed.' Turning the corner as he spoke, and facing the dim river flecked with flame, he pointed with his stick to the other bank. On the Surrey side at this point there ran out into the Thames, seeming almost to overhang it, a bulk and cluster of those tall tenements dotted with lighted windows, and rising like factory chimneys to an almost insane height. Their special poise and position made one block of buildings especially look like a tower of Babel with a hundred eyes. Syme had never seen any of the skyscraping buildings in America, so he could only think of the buildings in a dream. Even as he stared, the highest light in this innumerably lighted turret abruptly went out, as if this black Argus had winked at him with one of his innumerable eyes. Professor de Worm swung round on his heel and struck his stick against his boot. "'We are too late,' he said. "'The hygienic doctor has gone to bed.' "'What do you mean?' asked Syme. "'Does he live over there, then?' "'Yes,' said de Worms. "'Behind that particular window which you can't see. "'Come along and get some dinner. "'We must call on him tomorrow morning.' Without further parley, he led the way through several byways until they came out into the flare and clamour of the East India Dock Road. The professor, who seemed to know his way about the neighbourhood, proceeded to a place where the line of lighted shops fell back into a sort of abrupt twilight and quiet, in which an old white inn, all out of repair, stood back some twenty feet from the road. "'You can find good English inns left by accident everywhere, like fossils,' explained the professor. "'I once found a decent place in the West End.' "'I suppose,' said Syme, smiling, "'that this is the corresponding decent place in the East End?' "'It is.' said the professor reverently, and went in. In that place they dined and slept, both very thoroughly. The beans and bacon which these unaccountable people cooked well, the astonishing emergence of Burgundy from their cellars, crowned Syme's sense of a new comradeship and comfort. Through all this ordeal his root horror had been isolation, and there are no words to express the abyss between isolation and having one ally. It may be conceded, to the mathematicians, that four is twice two. But two is not twice one. Two is two thousand times one. That is why, in spite of a hundred disadvantages, the world will always return to monogamy. Syme was able to pour out for the first time the whole of his outrageous tale from the time when Gregory had taken him to the little tavern by the river. He did it idly and amply in a luxuriant monologue, as a man speaks with very old friends. On his side also, the man who had impersonated Professor de Worms was not less communicative. His own story was almost as silly as Syme's. "'That's a good get-up of yours,' said Syme, draining a glass of Macon. "'A lot better than old Gogol's. Even at the start I thought he was a bit too hairy.' "'A difference of artistic theory,' replied the professor pensively. "'Gogol was an idealist.' He made up as the abstract or platonic ideal of an anarchist. But I am a realist, 
I am a portrait painter. But, indeed, to say that I am a portrait painter is an inadequate expression. I am a portrait. I don't understand you, said Syme. I am a portrait, repeated the professor. I am a portrait of the celebrated Professor de Worms, who is, I believe, in Naples. You mean you are made up like him, said Syme. But doesn't he know that you are taking his nose in vain? He knows it right enough, replied his friend cheerfully. Then why doesn't he denounce you? I have denounced him, answered the professor. Do explain yourself, said Syme. With pleasure, if you don't mind hearing my story, replied the eminent foreign philosopher. I am by profession an actor, and my name is Wilkes. When I was on the stage I mixed with all sorts of bohemian and blackguard company. Sometimes I touched the edge of the turf, sometimes the riff-raff of the arts, and occasionally the political refugee. In some den of exile dreamers I was introduced to the great German nihilist philosopher, Professor de Worms. I did not gather much about him beyond his appearance, which was very disgusting, and which I studied carefully. I understood that he had proved that the destructive principle in the universe was God. Hence he insisted on the need for a furious and incessant energy, rending all things in pieces. Energy, he said, was the all. He was lame, short-sighted, and partially paralytic. When I met him, I was in a frivolous mood, and I disliked him so much that I resolved to imitate him. If I had been a draughtsman, I would have drawn a caricature. I was only an actor. I could only act a caricature. I made myself up into what was meant for a wild exaggeration of the old professor's dirty old self. When I went into the room full of his supporters, I expected to be received with a roar of laughter, or, if they were too far gone, with a roar of indignation at the insult. I cannot describe the surprise I felt when my entrance was received with a respectful silence, followed, when I had first opened my lips, with a murmur of admiration. The curse of the perfect artist had fallen upon me. I had been too subtle, I had been too true. They thought I really was the great nihilist professor. I was a healthy-minded young man at the time, and I confess that it was a blow. Before I could fully recover, however, two or three of these admirers— ran up to me radiating indignation and told me that a public insult had been put upon me in the next room. I inquired its nature. It seemed that an impertinent fellow had dressed himself up as a preposterous parody of myself. I had drunk more champagne than was good for me, and in a flash of folly I decided to see the situation through. Consequently, it was to meet the glare of the company and my own lifted eyebrows and freezing eyes that the real professor came into the room. I need hardly say there was a collision. The pessimists all round me looked anxiously from one professor to the other professor to see which was really the more feeble. But I won. An old man in poor health, like my rival, could not be expected to be so impressively feeble as a young actor in the prime of life. You see, he really had paralysis, and working within this definite limitation, he couldn't be so jolly paralytic as I was. Then he tried to blast my claims intellectually. I countered that by a very simple dodge. Whenever he said something that nobody but he could understand, I replied with something which I could not even understand myself. 
"'I don't fancy,' he said, "'that you could have worked out the principle that evolution is only negation, since there inheres in it the introduction of lacuna, which are an essential of differentiation.' I replied quite scornfully, "'You read all that up in Pinkworth's. The notion that involution function eugenically was exposed long ago by Glump. It is unnecessary for me to say that there never were such people as Pinkworts and Glump. But the people all round, rather to my surprise, seemed to remember them quite well, and the professor, finding that the learned and mysterious method left him rather at the mercy of an enemy slightly deficient in scruples, fell back upon a more popular form of wit. I see, he sneered. You prevail like the false pig in Aesop. And you fail, I answered, smiling, like the hedgehog in Montaigne. Need I say that there is no hedgehog in Montaigne? Your claptrap comes off, he said. So would your beard. I had no intelligent answer to this, which was quite true and rather witty. But I laughed heartily, answered, like the pantheus boots, at random, and turned on my heel with all the honours of victory. The real professor was thrown out, but not with violence, though one man tried very patiently to pull off his nose. He is now, I believe, received everywhere in Europe as a delightful impostor. His apparent earnestness and anger, you see, make him all the more entertaining. "'Well,' said Syme, "'I can understand your putting on his dirty old beard for a night's practical joke, but I don't understand your never taking it off again.' "'That is the rest of the story,' said the impersonator. "'When I myself left the company, followed by reverent applause, "'I went limping down the dark street, "'hoping that I should soon be far enough away "'to be able to walk like a human being. "'To my astonishment, as I was turning the corner, "'I felt a touch on my shoulder, and turning, "'found myself under the shadow of an enormous policeman. "'He told me I was wanted. "'I struck a sort of paralytic attitude "'and cried in a high German accent, "'Yes, I am wanted by the oppressed of the world. "'You are arresting me on the charge of being the great anarchist, Professor de Worms.' "'The policeman impassively consulted a paper in his hand. "'No, sir,' he said civilly. "'At least, not exactly, sir. "'I am arresting you on the charge of not being the celebrated anarchist, Professor de Worms.' "'This charge, if it was criminal at all, was certainly the lighter of the two and I went along with the man, doubtful but not greatly dismayed. I was shown into a number of rooms, and eventually into the presence of a police officer, who explained that a serious campaign had been opened against the centres of anarchy, and that this, my successful masquerade, might be of considerable value to the public safety. He offered me a good salary, and this little blue card. Though our conversation was short, he struck me as a man of very massive common sense and humour, but I cannot tell you much about him personally, because— Syme laid down his knife and fork. I know, he said, because you talked to him in a dark room. Professor de Worms nodded and drained his glass. End of chapter 8《ハッピーバースデー》This is a LibriVox This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.
Reading by Zachary Brewster Geis, Greenbelt, Maryland, June 2007. The Man Who Was Thursday, A Nightmare, by G. K. Chesterton. Chapter 9. The Man in Spectacles. Burgundy is a jolly thing, said the professor sadly, as he set his glass down. You don't look as if it were, said Syme. You drink it as if it were medicine. You must excuse my manner, said the professor dismally. My position is rather a curious one. Inside I am really bursting with boyish merriment, but I acted the paralytic professor so well that now I can't leave off, so that when I am among friends and have no need at all to disguise myself, I still can't help speaking slow and wrinkling my forehead, just as if it were my forehead. I can be quite happy, you understand, but only in a paralytic sort of way. The most buoyant exclamations leap up in my heart, but they come out of my mouth quite different. You should hear me say, Buck up, old cock. It would bring tears to your eyes. It does, said Syme. But I cannot help thinking that apart from all that you are really a bit worried. The professor stared a little and looked at him steadily. "'You are a very clever fellow,' he said. "'It is a pleasure to work with you. "'Yes, I have rather a heavy cloud in my head. "'There is a great problem to face.' "'And he sank his bald brow in his two hands. "'Then he said in a low voice, "'Can you play the piano?' "'Yes,' said Syme, in simple wonder. "'I'm supposed to have a good touch.' Then, as the other did not speak, he added, I trust the great cloud is lifted. After a long silence, the professor said out of the cavernous shadow of his hands, It would have done just as well if you could work a typewriter. Thank you, said Syme. You flatter me. Listen to me, said the other, and remember whom we have to see tomorrow. You and I are going tomorrow to attempt something which is very much more dangerous than trying to steal the crown jewels out of the tower. We are trying to steal a secret from a very sharp, very strong, and very wicked man. I believe there is no man, except the President, of course, who is so seriously startling and formidable as that little grinning fellow in goggles. He has not perhaps the white-hot enthusiasm unto death, the mad martyrdom for anarchy which marks the secretary. But then that very fanaticism in the secretary has a human pathos, and is almost a redeeming trait. But the little doctor has a brutal sanity that is more shocking than the secretary's disease. Don't you notice his detestable virility and vitality? He bounces like an india-rubber ball. Depend on it, Sunday was not asleep, I wonder if he ever sleeps, when he locked up all the plans of this outrage in the round black head of Dr. Bull. And you think, said Syme, that this unique monster will be soothed if I play the piano to him? Don't be an ass, said his mentor. I mentioned the piano because it gives one quick and independent fingers. Syme, if we are to go through this interview and come out sane or alive, we must have some code of signals between us that this brute will not see. 
I have made a rough alphabetical cipher corresponding to the five fingers, like this, see. And he rippled with his fingers on the wooden table. B-A-D, bad, a word we may frequently require. Syme poured himself out another glass of wine and began to study the scheme. He was abnormally quick with his brains at puzzles and with his hands at conjuring, and it did not take him long to learn how he might convey simple messages by what would seem to be idle taps upon a table or knee. But wine and companionship had always the effect of inspiring him to a farcical ingenuity, and the professor soon found himself struggling with the too vast energy of the new language as it passed through the heated brain of Syme. "'We must have several word-signs,' said Syme seriously. "'Words that we are likely to want fine shades of meaning. My favorite word is coeval. What's yours?' "'Do stop playing the goat,' said the professor plaintively. "'You don't know how serious this is.' "'Lush, too,' said Syme, shaking his head sagaciously. "'We must have lush. Word applied to grass, don't you know?' "'Do you imagine,' asked the professor furiously, "'that we are going to talk to Dr. Bull about grass?' "'There are several ways in which the subject could be approached,' said Syme reflectively, "'and the word introduced without appearing forced. We might say, "'Dr. Bull, as a revolutionist, you remember that a tyrant once advised us to eat grass, "'and indeed many of us, looking on the fresh, lush grass of summer—' "'Do you understand?' said the other, that this is a tragedy. Perfectly, replied Syme. Always be comic in a tragedy. What the deuce else can you do? I wish this language of yours had a wider scope. I suppose we could not extend it from the fingers to the toes. That would involve pulling off our boots and socks during the conversation, which, however unobtrusively performed. Syme, said his friend with a stern simplicity, go to bed. Syme, however, sat up in bed for a considerable time mastering the new code. He was awakened next morning while the east was still sealed with darkness, and found his grey-bearded ally standing like a ghost beside his bed. Syme sat up in bed blinking, then slowly collected his thoughts, threw off the bedclothes, and stood up. It seemed to him in some curious way that all the safety and sociability of the night before fell with the bedclothes off him and he stood up in an air of cold danger. He still felt an entire trust and loyalty towards his companion, but it was the trust between two men going to the scaffold. "'Well,' said Syme, with a forced cheerfulness as he pulled on his trousers, "'I dreamt of that alphabet of yours. Did it take you long to make it up?' The professor made no answer, but gazed in front of him with eyes the color of a wintry sea. So Syme repeated his question. "'I say, did it take you long to invent all this? I'm considered good at these things, and it was a good hour's grind. Did you learn it all on the spot?' The professor was silent. His eyes were wide open, and he wore a fixed but very small smile. "'How long did it take you?' The professor did not move. "'Confound you! Can't you answer?' called out Syme in a sudden anger that had something like fear underneath. Whether or no the professor could answer, he did not. Syme stood staring back at the stiff face like parchment and the blank blue eyes. His first thought was that the professor had gone mad, but his second thought was more frightful. 
After all, what did he know about this queer creature, whom he had heedlessly accepted as a friend? What did he know except that the man had been at the anarchist breakfast, and had told him a ridiculous tale? How improbable it was that there should be another friend there beside Gogol! Was this man's silence a sensational way of declaring war? Was this adamantine stare, after all, only the awful sneer of some threefold traitor who had turned for the last time? He stood and strained his ears in this heartless silence. He almost fancied he could hear dynamiters come to capture him, shifting softly in the corridor outside. Then his eye strayed downwards, and he burst out laughing. Though the professor himself stood there as voiceless as a statue, his five dumb fingers were dancing alive upon the dead table. Syme watched the twinkling movements of the talking hand, and read clearly the message, I will only talk like this. We must get used to it. He rapped out the answer with the impatience of relief. All right, let's get out to breakfast. They took their hats and sticks in silence, but as Syme took his sword-stick, he held it hard. They paused for a few minutes only to stuff down coffee and coarse, thick sandwiches at a coffee stall, and then made their way across the river, which under the grey and growing light looked as desolate as Asheron. They reached the bottom of the huge block of buildings, which they had seen from across the river, and began in silence to mount the naked and numberless stone steps, only pausing now and then to make short remarks on the rail of the banisters. At about every other flight they passed a window. Each window showed them a pale and tragic dawn lifting itself laboriously over London. From each the innumerable roofs of slate looked like the leaden surges of a grey troubled sea after rain. Syme was increasingly conscious that his new adventure had somehow a quality of cold sanity worse than the wild adventures of the past. Last night, for instance, the tall tenements had seemed to him like a tower in a dream. As he now went up the weary and perpetual steps, he was daunted and bewildered by their almost infinite series. But it was not the hot horror of a dream, or of anything that might be exaggeration or delusion. Their infinity was more like the empty infinity of arithmetic, something unthinkable yet necessary to thought. Or it was like the stunning statements of astronomy about the distance of the fixed stars. He was ascending the house of reason, a thing more hideous than unreason itself. By the time they reached Dr. Bull's landing, a last window showed them a harsh white dawn, edged with banks of a kind of coarse red, more like red clay than red cloud and when they entered Dr. Bull's bare garret it was full of light. Syme had been haunted by a half-historic memory in connection with these empty rooms in that austere daybreak. The moment he saw the garret and Dr. Bull sitting writing at a table, he remembered what the memory was—the French Revolution. There should have been the black outline of a guillotine against that heavy red and white of the morning. Dr. Bull was in his white shirt and black breeches only. His cropped, dark head might well have just come out of its wig. He might have been Marat or a more slipshod Robespierre. Yet when he was seen properly, the French fancy fell away. The Jacobins were idealists. There was about this man a murderous materialism. His position gave him a somewhat new appearance. 
the strong white light of morning coming from one side creating sharp shadows, made him seem both more pale and more angular than he had looked at the breakfast on the balcony. Thus the two black glasses that encased his eyes might really have been black cavities in his skull, making him look like a death's head. And indeed, if ever death himself sat writing at a wooden table, it might have been he. He looked up and smiled brightly enough as the men came in, and rose with the resilient rapidity of which the professor had spoken. He set chairs for both of them, and going to a peg behind the door, proceeded to put on a coat and waistcoat of rough dark tweed. He buttoned it up neatly, and came back to sit down at his table. The quiet good humor of his manner left his two opponents helpless. It was with some momentary difficulty that the professor broke silence and began, "'I'm sorry to disturb you so early, comrade,' said he, with a careful resumption of the slow de Worm's manner. "'You have no doubt made all the arrangements for the Paris affair.' Then he added with infinite slowness, "'We have information which renders intolerable anything in the nature of a moment's delay.' Dr. Bull smiled again, but continued to gaze on them without speaking. The professor resumed, a pause before each weary word. "'Please do not think me excessively abrupt, but I advise you to alter those plans, or, if it is too late for that, to follow your agent with all the support you can get for him. Comrade Syme and I have had an experience which it would take more time to recount than we can afford if we are to act on it.' I will, however, relate the occurrence in detail, even at the risk of losing time, if you really feel that it is essential to the understanding of the problem we have to discuss. He was spinning out his sentences, making them intolerably long and lingering, in the hope of maddening the practical little doctor into an explosion of impatience which might show his hand but the little doctor continued only to stare and smile, and the monologue was uphill work. Syme began to feel a new sickness and despair. The doctor's smile and silence were not at all like the cataleptic stare and horrible silence which he had confronted in the professor half an hour before. About the professor's make-up and all his antics there was always something merely grotesque, like a gollywog. Syme remembered those wild woes of yesterday as one remembers being afraid of bogey in childhood. But here was daylight. Here was a healthy, square-shouldered man in tweeds, not awed save for the accident of his ugly spectacles, not glaring or grinning at all, but smiling steadily and not saying a word. The whole had a sense of unbearable reality. Under the increasing sunlight, the colors of the doctor's complexion, the pattern of his tweeds, grew and expanded outrageously, as such things grow too important in a realistic novel. But his smile was quite slight, the pose of his head polite, the only uncanny thing was his silence. "'As I say,' resumed the professor, like a man toiling through heavy sand, "'the incident that has occurred to us and has led us to ask for information about the Marquis "'is one which you may think it better to have narrated. "'But as it came in the way of Comrade Syme rather than me—' 
His words seemed to be dragging out like words in an anthem. But Syme, who was watching, saw his long fingers rattle quickly on the edge of the crazy table. He read the message. You must go on. This devil has sucked me dry. Syme plunged into the breach with that bravado of improvisation which always came to him when he was alarmed. Yes, the thing really happened to me, he said hastily. I had the good fortune to fall into conversation with a detective who took me, thanks to my hat, for a respectable person. Wishing to clinch my reputation for respectability, I took him and made him very drunk at the Savoy. Under this influence, he became friendly, and told me in so many words that within a day or two they hoped to arrest the Marquis in France. So unless you or I can get on his track— The doctor was still smiling in the most friendly way, and his protected eyes were still impenetrable. The professor signaled to Syme that he would resume his explanation, and he began again with the same elaborate calm. Syme immediately brought this information to me, and we came here together to see what use you would be inclined to make of it. It seems to me unquestionably urgent that— All this time Syme had been staring at the doctor, almost as steadily as the doctor stared at the professor, but quite without the smile. The nerves of both comrades-in-arms were near snapping under that strain of motionless amiability, when Syme suddenly leant forward and idly tapped the edge of the table. His message to his ally ran, I have an intuition. The professor, with scarcely a pause in his monologue, signaled back, Then sit on it. Syme telegraphed, It is quite extraordinary. The other answered, Extraordinary rot! Syme said, I am a poet. The other retorted, You are a dead man. Syme had gone quite red up to his yellow hair, and his eyes were burning feverishly. As he said, he had an intuition, and it had risen to a sort of light-headed certainty. Resuming his symbolic taps, he signaled to his friend, You scarcely realize how poetic my intuition is. It has that sudden quality we sometimes feel in the coming of spring. He then studied the answer on his friend's fingers. The answer was, Go to hell. The professor then resumed his merely verbal monologue addressed to the doctor. "'Perhaps I should rather say,' said Syme on his fingers, "'that it resembles that sudden smell of the sea which may be found in the heart of lush woods.' His companion disdained to reply. "'Or yet again,' tapped Syme, "'it is positive, as is the passionate red hair of a beautiful woman.' The professor was continuing his speech, but in the middle of it Syme decided to act. He leaned across the table and said in a voice that could not be neglected, "'Dr. Bull!' The doctor's sleek and smiling head did not move, but they could have sworn that under his dark glasses his eyes darted towards Syme. "'Dr. Bull,' said Syme, in a voice peculiarly precise and courteous, would you do me a small favor? Would you be so kind as to take off your spectacles? The professor swung round on his seat and stared at Syme with a sort of frozen fury of astonishment. Syme, like a man who has thrown his life and fortune on the table, leaned forward with a fiery face. The doctor did not move. 
For a few seconds there was a silence, in which one could hear a pin drop, split once by the single hoot of a distant steamer on the Thames. Then Dr. Bull rose slowly, still smiling, and took off his spectacles. Syme sprang to his feet, stepping backwards a little like a chemical lecturer from a successful explosion. His eyes were like stars, and for an instant he could only point without speaking. The professor had also started to his feet, forgetful of his supposed paralysis. He leaned on the back of the chair, and stared doubtfully at Dr. Bull, as if the doctor had been turned into a toad before his eyes. And indeed, it was almost as great a transformation scene. The two detectives saw sitting in the chair before them a very boyish-looking young man, with very frank and happy hazel eyes, an open expression, cockney clothes like those of a city clerk, and an unquestionable breath about him, of being very good and rather commonplace. The smile was still there, but it might have been the first smile of a baby. "'I knew I was a poet!' cried Syme in a sort of ecstasy. I knew my intuition was as infallible as the Pope. It was the spectacles that did it. It was all the spectacles. Given those beastly black eyes, and all the rest of him his health and his jolly looks, made him a live devil among dead ones. It certainly does make a queer difference, said the professor shakily. But as regards the project of Dr. Bull— Project be damned, roared Syme, beside himself. Look at him! Look at his face, look at his collar, look at his blessed boots! You don't suppose, do you, that that thing's an anarchist? Syme! cried the other in an apprehensive agony. Why, by God, said Syme, I'll take the risk of that myself. Dr. Bull, I am a police officer. There's my card! And he flung down the blue card upon the table. The professor still feared that all was lost, but he was loyal. He pulled out his own official card and put it beside his friend's. Then the third man burst out laughing, and for the first time that morning they heard his voice. "'I'm awfully glad you chaps have come so early,' he said, with a sort of schoolboy flippancy. "'For we can all start for France together. Yes, I'm in the force right enough.' And he flicked a blue card towards them lightly, as a matter of form. Clapping a brisk bowler on his head— and resuming his goblin glasses. The doctor moved so quickly towards the door that the others instinctively followed him. Syme seemed a little distrait, and as he passed under the doorway he suddenly struck his stick on the stone passage so that it rang. "'But, Lord God Almighty!' he cried out. "'If this is all right, there were more damned detectives than there were damned dynamiters at the damned council!' "'We might have fought easily,' said Bull. We were four against three. The professor was descending the stairs, but his voice came up from below. No, said the voice. We were not four against three. We were not so lucky. We were four against one. The others went down the stairs in silence. The young man called Bull, with an innocent courtesy characteristic of him, insisted on going last until they reached the street but there his own robust rapidity asserted itself unconsciously, and he walked quickly on ahead towards a railway inquiry office, talking to the others over his shoulder. "'It is jolly to get some pals,' he said. "'I've been half dead with the jumps being quite alone. 
I nearly flung my arms round Gogol and embraced him, which would have been imprudent. I hope you won't despise me for having been in a blue funk. All the blue devils in blue hell, said Syme, contributed to my blue funk, but the worst devil was you and your infernal goggles. The young man laughed delightedly. Wasn't it a rag, he said. Such a simple idea, not my own. I haven't got the brains. You see, I wanted to go into the detective service, especially the anti-dynamite business, but for that purpose they wanted someone to dress up as a dynamiter, and they all swore by blazes that I could never look like a dynamiter. They said my very walk was respectable, and that seen from behind I looked like the British Constitution. They said I looked too healthy and too optimistic and too reliable and benevolent. They called me all sorts of names at Scotland Yard. They said that if I had been a criminal, I might have made my fortune by looking so like an honest man. But as I had the misfortune to be an honest man, there was not even the remotest chance of my assisting them by ever looking like a criminal. But at last I was brought before some old josser who was high up in the force, and who seemed to have no end of a head on his shoulders. And there the others all talked hopelessly. One asked whether a bushy beard would hide my nice smile. Another said that if they blacked my face, I might look like a negro anarchist. But this old chap chipped in with a most extraordinary remark. "'A pair of smoked spectacles will do it,' he said positively. "'Look at him now. He looks like an angelic office boy. Put him on a pair of smoked spectacles, and children will scream at the sight of him.' And so it was, by George. When once my eyes were covered, all the rest, smile and big shoulders and short hair, made me look like a perfect little devil. As I say, it was simple enough that when it was done, like miracles, but that wasn't the really miraculous part of it. There was one really staggering thing about the business, and my head still turns at it. "'What was that?' asked Syme. "'I'll tell you,' answered the man in spectacles. "'This big pot in the police, who sized me up so that he knew how the goggles would go with my hair and socks.' "'My God, he never saw me at all!' Syme's eyes suddenly flashed on him. "'How was that?' he asked. "'I thought you talked to him.' "'So I did,' said Bull brightly. "'But we talked in a pitch-dark room like a coal-cellar. "'There, you would never have guessed that.' "'I could not have conceived it,' said Syme gravely. "'It is indeed a new idea,' said the professor." Their new ally was, in practical matters, a whirlwind. At the inquiry office he asked with business-like brevity about the trains for Dover. Having got his information, he bundled the company into a cab and put them and himself inside a railway carriage before they had properly realized the breathless process. They were already on the Calais boat before conversation flowed freely. "'I had already arranged,' he explained, "'to go to France for my lunch, but I am delighted to have someone to lunch with me.' You see, I had to send that beast, the Marquis, over with his bomb, because the President had his eye on me, though God knows how. I'll tell you the story some day. It was perfectly choking. Whenever I tried to slip out of it, I saw the President somewhere, smiling out of the bow window of a club, or taking off his hat to me from the top of an omnibus. I tell you, you can say what you like. That fellow sold himself to the devil. He can be in six places at once." "'So you sent the Marquis off, I understand,' asked the professor. "'Was it long ago? Shall we be in time to catch him?' "'Yes,' answered the new guide. "'I've timed it all. He'll still be at Calais when we arrive.' "'But when we do catch him at Calais,' said the professor, "'what are we going to do?' 
At this question, the countenance of Dr. Bull fell for the first time. He reflected a little, and then said, "'Theoretically, I suppose, we ought to call the police.' "'Not I,' said Syme. "'Theoretically, I ought to drown myself first. I promised a poor fellow, who was a real modern pessimist, on my word of honour not to tell the police. I'm no hand at casuistry, but I can't break my word to a modern pessimist. It's like breaking one's word to a child.' "'I'm in the same boat,' said the professor. "'I tried to tell the police, and I couldn't, because of some silly oath I took. You see, when I was an actor I was a sort of all-round beast. Perjury or treason is the only crime I haven't committed. If I did that, I shouldn't know the difference between right and wrong.' "'I've been through all that,' said Dr. Bull, "'and I've made up my mind. I gave my promise to the secretary—you know him—man who smiles upside down.' My friends, that man is the most utterly unhappy man that was ever human. It may be his digestion, or his conscience, or his nerves, or his philosophy of the universe, but he's damned, he's in hell. Well, I can't turn on a man like that and hunt him down. It's like whipping a leper. I may be mad, but that's how I feel, and there's jolly well the end of it. I don't think you're mad, said Syme. I knew you would decide like that when first you— Eh? said Dr. Bull. When first you took off your spectacles. Dr. Bull smiled a little, and strolled across the deck to look at the sunlit sea. Then he strolled back again, kicking his heels carelessly, and a companionable silence fell between the three men. Well, said Syme, it seems that we have all the same kind of morality or immorality, so we had better face the fact that comes of it. Yes, assented the professor. You're quite right. And we must hurry up, for I can see the grey nose standing out from France. The fact that comes of it, said Syme seriously, is this, that we three are alone on this planet. Gogol has gone, God knows where, perhaps the President has smashed him like a fly. On the Council we are three men against three, like the Romans who held the bridge. But we are worse off than that first because they can appeal to their organization, and we cannot appeal to ours, and second because—' "'Because one of those three other men,' said the professor, "'is not a man.' Syme nodded, and was silent for a second or two. Then he said, "'My idea is this. We must do something to keep the Marquis in Calais till tomorrow midday. I have turned over twenty schemes in my head. We cannot denounce him as a dynamiter, that is agreed. We cannot get him detained on some trivial charge, for we should have to appear. He knows us, and he would smell a rat. We cannot pretend to keep him on anarchist business. He might swallow much in that way, but not the notion of stopping in Calais while the Tsar went safely through Paris. We might try to kidnap him and lock him up ourselves, but he is a well-known man here. He has a whole bodyguard of friends. He is very strong and brave and the event is doubtful. The only thing I can see to do is actually to take advantage of the very things that are in the Marquis's favour. I am going to profit by the fact that he is a highly respected nobleman. I am going to profit by the fact that he has many friends and moves in the best society. "'What the devil are you talking about?' asked the professor. "'The Symes are first mentioned in the fourteenth century,' said Syme. But there is a tradition that one of them rode behind Bruce at Bannockburn. 
Since 1350 the tree is quite clear. He's gone off his head, said the little doctor, staring. Our bearings, continued Syme calmly, are Argent a chevron jewels charged with three cross crotslets of the field. The motto varies. The professor seized Syme roughly by the waistcoat. We are just inshore, he said. Are you seasick or joking in the wrong place? My remarks are almost painfully practical, answered Syme in an unhurried manner. The house of Saint Eustache is also very ancient. The Marquis cannot deny that he is a gentleman. He cannot deny that I am a gentleman. And in order to put the matter of my social position quite beyond a doubt, I propose at the earliest opportunity to knock his hat off. But here we are in the harbour. They went on shore under the strong sun in a sort of daze. Syme, who had now taken the lead as Bull had taken it in London, led them along a kind of marine parade until he came to some cafés embowered in a bulk of greenery and overlooking the sea. As he went before them his step was slightly swaggering, and he swung his stick like a sword. He was making apparently for the extreme end of the line of cafés, but he stopped abruptly. With a sharp gesture he motioned them to silence, but he pointed with one gloved finger to a café table under a bank of flowering foliage, at which sat the Marquis de Saint-Eustache, his teeth shining in his thick black beard, and his bold brown face shadowed by a light yellow straw hat and outlined against the violet sea. End of chapter 9《Chapter Ten of the Man Who Was Thursday》This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Zachary Brewster Geis, Greenbelt, Maryland, June 2007. The Man Who Was Thursday A Nightmare by G. K. Chesterton. Chapter Ten The Duel. Syme sat down at a café table with his companions, his blue eyes sparkling like the bright sea below, and ordered a bottle of saumur with a pleased impatience. He was for some reason in a condition of curious hilarity. His spirits were already unnaturally high. They rose as the saumur sank, and in half an hour his talk was a torrent of nonsense. He professed to be making out a plan of the conversation which was going to ensue between himself and the deadly Marquis. He jotted it down wildly with a pencil. It was arranged like a printed catechism, with questions and answers, and was delivered with an extraordinary rapidity of utterance. I shall approach. Before taking off his hat, I shall take off my own. I shall say, the Marquis de Saint-Eustache, I believe. He will say, the celebrated Mr. Syme, I presume. He will say in the most exquisite French, How are you? I shall reply in the most exquisite cockney, Oh, just the Syme. Oh, shut it, said the man in spectacles. Pull yourself together and chuck away that bit of paper. What are you really going to do? But it was a lovely catechism, said Syme pathetically. Do let me read it to you. It has only forty-three questions and answers, and some of the Marquis' answers are wonderfully witty. I like to be just to my enemy. "'But what's the good of it all?' 
asked Dr. Bull in exasperation. "'It leads up to my challenge, don't you see?' said Syme, beaming, when the Marquis has given the thirty-ninth reply, which runs. "'Has it by any chance occurred to you?' asked the professor with a ponderous simplicity, that the Marquis may not say all the forty-three things you have put down for him. In that case, I understand, your own epigrams may appear somewhat more forced. Syme struck the table with a radiant face. Why, how true that is, he said, and I never thought of it. Sir, you have an intellect beyond the common. You will make a name. "'Oh, you're as drunk as an owl,' said the doctor. "'It only remains,' continued Syme, quite unperturbed, "'to adopt some other method of breaking the ice, if I may so express it, "'between myself and the man I wish to kill. "'And since the course of a dialogue cannot be predicted by one of its parties alone, "'as you have pointed out with such recondite acumen, "'the only thing to be done, I suppose, is for the one party as far as possible "'to do all the dialogue by himself.' "'And so I will, by George!' And he stood up suddenly, his yellow hair blowing in the slight sea-breeze. A band was playing in a café chantant, hidden somewhere among the trees, and a woman had just stopped singing. On Syme's heated head the bray of the brass band seemed like the jar and jingle of that barrel organ in Leicester Square, to the tune of which he had once stood up to die. He looked across to the little table where the Marquis sat, the man had two companions now, solemn Frenchmen, in frock coats and silk hats, one of them with the red rosette of the Legion of Honour, evidently people of a solid social position. Besides these black cylindrical costumes, the Marquis, in his loose straw hat and light spring clothes, looked bohemian and even barbaric, but he looked the Marquis. Indeed, one might say that he looked the king with his animal elegance, his scornful eyes, and his proud head lifted against the purple sea. But he was no Christian king at any rate. He was rather some swarthy despot, half Greek, half Asiatic, who in the days when slavery seemed natural looked down on the Mediterranean, on his galley and his groaning slaves. Just so, Syme thought, would the brown-gold face of such a tyrant have shone against the dark green olives and the burning blue. "'Are you going to address the meeting?' asked the professor peevishly, seeing that Syme still stood up without moving. Syme drained his last glass of sparkling wine. "'I am,' he said, pointing across to the Marquis and his companions. "'That meeting. That meeting displeases me. I am going to pull that meeting's great, ugly, mahogany-coloured nose.' He stepped across swiftly, if not quite steadily. The Marquis, seeing him, arched his black Assyrian eyebrows in surprise, but smiled politely. "'You are Mr. Syme, I think,' he said. Syme bowed. "'And you are the Marquis de Saint-Eustache,' he said gracefully. "'Permit me to pull your nose.' He leant over to do so, but the Marquis started backwards, upsetting his chair, and the two men in top-hats held Syme back by the shoulders. "'This man has insulted me,' said Syme, with gestures of explanation. "'Insulted you!' cried the gentleman with the red rosette. "'When?' "'Oh, just now,' said Syme recklessly. "'He insulted my mother.' 
"'Insulted your mother!' exclaimed the gentleman incredulously. "'Well, anyhow,' said Syme, conceding a point, "'my aunt.' "'But how can the Marquis have insulted your aunt just now?' said the second gentleman, with some legitimate wonder. "'He has been sitting here all the time.' "'Ah, it was what he said,' said Syme darkly. "'I said nothing at all,' said the Marquis, "'except something about the band. "'I only said that I liked Wagner played well.' "'It was an allusion to my family,' said Syme firmly. "'My aunt played Wagner badly. "'It was a painful subject. "'We are always being insulted about it.' "'This seems most extraordinary,' said the gentleman who was Decor, "'looking doubtfully at the Marquis.' "'Oh, I assure you,' said Syme earnestly, "'the whole of your conversation was simply packed "'with sinister allusions to my aunt's weaknesses.' "'This is nonsense,' said the second gentleman. "'I, for one, have said nothing for half an hour "'except that I like the singing of that girl with the black hair.' "'Well, there you are again,' said Syme indignantly. "'My aunt's was red.' "'It seems to me,' said the other, that you are simply seeking a pretext to insult the Marquis. "'By George!' said Syme, facing round and looking at him. "'What a clever chap you are!' The Marquis started up with eyes flaming like a tiger's. "'Seeking a quarrel with me?' he cried. "'Seeking a fight with me? By God, there was never a man who had to seek long. These gentlemen will perhaps act for me. There are still four hours of daylight. Let us fight this evening.' Syme bowed, with a quite beautiful graciousness. "'Marquis,' he said, "'your action is worthy of your fame and blood. Permit me to consult for a moment with the gentleman in whose hands I shall place myself.' In three long strides he rejoined his companions, and they, who had seen his champagne-inspired attack and listened to his idiotic explanations, were quite startled at the look of him for now that he came back to them he was quite sober, a little pale, and he spoke in a low voice of passionate practicality. "'I have done it,' he said hoarsely. "'I have fixed a fight on the beast. But look here and listen carefully. There is no time for talk. You are my seconds, and everything must come from you. Now you must insist, and insist absolutely, on the duel coming off after seven tomorrow, so as to give me the chance of preventing him from catching the seven forty-five for Paris. If he misses that, he misses his crime. He can't refuse to meet you on such a small point of time and place. But this is what he will do. He will choose a field, somewhere near a wayside station, where he can pick up the train. He is a very good swordsman, and he will trust to killing me in time to catch it. But I can fence well, too, and I think I can keep him in play, at any rate, until the train is lost. Then perhaps he may kill me to console his feelings. You understand?' "'Very well, then. Let me introduce you to some charming friends of mine.' And leading them quickly across the parade, he presented them to the Marquis' seconds by two very aristocratic names of which they had not previously heard. Syme was subject to spasms of singular common sense, not otherwise a part of his character. They were, as he said of his impulse about the spectacles, poetic intuitions, and they sometimes rose to the exultation of prophecy. He had correctly calculated, in this case, the policy of his opponent. When the Marquis was informed by his seconds that Syme could only fight in the morning, he must fully have realized that an obstacle 
had suddenly arisen between him and his bomb-throwing business in the capital. Naturally, he could not explain this objection to his friends, so he chose the course which Syme had predicted. He induced his seconds to settle on a small meadow not far from the railway, and he trusted to the fatality of the first engagement. When he came down very coolly to the field of honour, no one could have guessed that he had any anxiety about a journey. His hands were in his pockets, his straw hat on the back of his head, his handsome face brazen in the sun. But it might have struck a stranger as odd that there appeared in his train not only his seconds carrying the sword-case, but two of his servants carrying a portmanteau and a luncheon-basket. Early as was the hour, the sun soaked everything in warmth, and Syme was vaguely surprised to see so many spring flowers burning gold and silver in the tall grass in which the whole company stood almost knee-deep. With the exception of the Marquis, all the men were in sombre and solemn morning dress, with hats like black chimney-pots. The little doctor especially, with the addition of his black spectacles, looked like an undertaker in a farce. Syme could not help feeling a comic contrast between this funereal church parade of apparel and the rich and glistening meadow, growing wildflowers everywhere. But indeed this comic contrast between the yellow blossoms and the black hats was but a symbol of the tragic contrast between the yellow blossoms and the black business. On his right was a little wood. Far away to his left lay the long curve of the railway line, which he was, so to speak, guarding from the Marquis, whose goal and escape it was. In front of him, behind the black group of his opponents, he could see, like a tinted cloud, a small almond bush in flower against the faint line of the sea. The member of the Legion of Honour, whose name it seemed was Colonel Ducroix, approached the professor and Dr. Bull with great politeness, and suggested that the play should terminate with the first considerable hurt. Dr. Bull, however, having been carefully coached by Syme upon this point of policy, insisted, with great dignity and in very bad French, that it should continue until one of the combatants was disabled. Syme had made up his mind that he could avoid disabling the Marquis and prevent the Marquis from disabling him for at least twenty minutes. In twenty minutes the Paris train would have gone by. "'To a man of the well-known skill and valour of Monsieur de Saint-Eustache,' said the professor solemnly, "'it must be a matter of indifference which method is adopted, and our principal has strong reasons for demanding the longer encounter, reasons the delicacy of which prevent me from being explicit, but for the just and honourable nature of which I can—' "'Peste!' broke from the Marquis behind, whose face had suddenly darkened. Let us stop talking and begin, and he slashed off the head of a tall flower with his stick. Syme understood his rude impatience, and instinctively looked over his shoulder to see whether the train was coming in sight, but there was no smoke on the horizon. Colonel Ducroix knelt down and unlocked the case, taking out a pair of twin swords, which took the sunlight and turned to two streaks of white fire. He offered one to the Marquis, who snatched it without ceremony, and another to Syme, who took it, bent it, and poised it, with as much delay as was consistent with dignity. Then the Colonel took out another pair of blades, and taking one himself, and giving another to Dr. Bull, proceeded to place the men. 
Both combatants had thrown off their coats and waistcoats, and stood sword in hand. The second stood on each side of the line of fight with drawn swords also, but still sombre in their dark frock-coats and hats. The principals saluted. The colonel said quietly, Engage! And the two blades touched and tingled. When the jar of the joined iron ran up Syme's arm, all the fantastic fears that have been the subject of this story fell from him like dreams from a man waking up in bed. He remembered them clearly and in order, as mere delusions of the nerves, how the fear of the professor had been the fear of the tyrannic accidents of nightmare, and how the fear of the doctor had been the fear of the airless vacuum of science. The first was the old fear that any miracle might happen, the second the more hopeless modern fear that no miracle can ever happen. But he saw that these fears were fancies, for he found himself in the presence of the great fact of the fear of death, with its coarse and pitiless common sense. He felt like a man who had dreamed all night of falling over precipices, and had woke up on the morning when he was to be hanged. For as soon as he had seen the sunlight run down the channel of his foe's foreshortened blade, and as soon as he had felt the two tongues of steel touch, vibrating like two living things, he knew that his enemy was a terrible fighter, and that probably his last hour had come. He felt a strange and vivid value in all the earth around him, in the grass under his feet. He felt the love of life in all living things. He could almost fancy that he heard the grass growing. He could almost fancy that even as he stood, fresh flowers were springing up and breaking into blossom in the meadow, flowers blood-red and burning gold and blue, fulfilling the whole pageant of the spring. And whenever his eyes strayed for a flash from the calm, staring, hypnotic eyes of the Marquis, they saw the little tuft of almond tree against the skyline. He had the feeling that if, by some miracle, he escaped, he would be ready to sit forever before that almond tree, desiring nothing else in the world. But while earth and sky and everything had the living beauty of a thing lost, the other half of his head was as clear as glass, and he was parrying his enemy's point with a kind of clockwork skill of which he had hardly supposed himself capable. Once his enemy's point ran along his wrist, leaving a slight streak of blood, but it either was not noticed or was tacitly ignored. Every now and then he reposted, and once or twice he could almost fancy that he felt his point go home, but as there was no blood on blade or shirt, he supposed he was mistaken. Then came an interruption and a change. At the risk of losing all, the Marquis, interrupting his quiet stare, flashed one glance over his shoulder at the line of a railway on his right. Then he turned on Syme a face transfigured to that of a fiend, and began to fight as if with twenty weapons. The attack came so fast and furious that the one shining sword seemed a shower of shining arrows. Syme had no chance to look at the railway, but also he had no need. He could guess the reason of the Marquis' sudden madness of battle. The Paris train was in sight. But the Marquis' morbid energy overreached itself. Twice Syme parrying knocked his opponent's point far out of the fighting circle, and the third time his riposte was so rapid that there was no doubt about the hit this time. Syme's sword actually bent under the weight of the Marquis's body, which it had pierced. Syme was as certain that he had stuck his blade into his enemy as a gardener that he has stuck his spade into the ground. 
yet the Marquis sprang back from the stroke without a stagger, and Syme stood staring at his own sword-point like an idiot. There was no blood on it at all. There was an instant of rigid silence, and then Syme in his turn fell furiously on the other, filled with a flaming curiosity. The Marquis was probably, in a general sense, a better fencer than he, as he had surmised at the beginning. But at the moment the Marquis seemed distraught and at a disadvantage. He fought wildly and even weakly, and he constantly looked away at the railway line, almost as if he feared the train more than the pointed steel. Syme, on the other hand, fought fiercely, but still carefully, in an intellectual fury, eager to solve the riddle of his own bloodless sword. For this purpose he aimed less at the Marquis's body and more at his throat and head. A minute and a half afterwards he felt his point enter the man's neck below the jaw. It came out clean. Half-mad he thrust again, and made what should have been a bloody scar on the Marquis's cheek, but there was no scar. For one moment the heaven of Syme again grew black with supernatural terrors. Surely the man had a charmed life. But this new spiritual dread was a more awful thing than had been the mere spiritual topsy-turvydom symbolized by the paralytic who pursued him. The professor was only a goblin. This man was a devil. Perhaps he was THE devil. Anyhow, this was certain, that three times had a human sword been driven into him and made no mark. When Syme had that thought, he drew himself up and all that was good in him sang high up in the air as a high wind sings in the trees. He thought of all the human things in his story, of the Chinese lanterns in Saffron Park, of the girl's red hair in the garden, of the honest, beer-swilling sailors down by the dock, of his loyal companions standing by. Perhaps he had been chosen as a champion of all these fresh and kindly things to cross swords with the enemy of all creation. After all, he said to himself, I am more than a devil. I am a man. I can do the one thing which Satan himself cannot do. I can die. And as the word went through his head, he heard a faint and far-off hoot, which would soon be the roar of the Paris train. He fell to fighting again with a supernatural levity, like a Mohammedan panting for paradise. As the train came nearer and nearer, he fancied he could see people putting up the floral arches in Paris, he joined in the growing noise and the glory of the great republic whose gate he was guarding against hell. His thoughts rose higher and higher with the rising roar of the train, which ended, as if proudly, in a long and piercing whistle. The train stopped. Suddenly, to the astonishment of everyone, the Marquis sprang back quite out of sword-reach and threw down his sword. The leap was wonderful and not the less wonderful because Syme had plunged his sword a moment before into the man's thigh. "'Stop!' said the Marquis, in a voice that compelled a momentary obedience. "'I want to say something.' "'What is the matter?' asked Colonel Ducroix, staring. "'Has there been foul play?' "'There has been foul play somewhere,' said Dr. Bull, who was a little pale. "'Our principal has wounded the Marquis four times at least,' and he is none the worse." The Marquis put up his hand with a curious air of ghastly patience. "'Please let me speak,' he said. "'It is rather important. Mr. Syme,' he continued, turning to his opponent, "'we are fighting today, if I remember right, because you expressed a wish, which I thought irrational, to pull my nose. 
"'Would you oblige me by pulling my nose now as quickly as possible? "'I have to catch a train.' "'I protest that this is most irregular,' said Dr. Bull indignantly. "'It is certainly somewhat opposed to precedent,' said Colonel Ducroix, "'looking wistfully at his principal. "'There is, I think, one case on record, Captain Bellegarde and the Baron Zumpt, in which the weapons were changed in the middle of the encounter at the request of one of the combatants, but one can hardly call one's nose a weapon. "'Will you or will you not pull my nose?' said the Marquis in exasperation. "'Come, come, Mr. Syme, you wanted to do it, do it. You can have no conception of how important it is to me. Don't be so selfish. Pull my nose at once, when I ask you!' And he bent slightly forward, with a fascinating smile. The Paris train— panting and groaning, had grated into a little station behind the neighboring hill. Syme had the feeling he had more than once had in these adventures, the sense that a horrible and sublime wave lifted to heaven was just toppling over. Walking in a world he half understood, he took two paces forward and seized the Roman nose of this remarkable nobleman. He pulled it hard, and it came off in his hand. He stood for some seconds with a foolish solemnity, with the pasteboard proboscis still between his fingers, looking at it, while the sun and the clouds and the wooden hills looked down upon this imbecile scene. The Marquis broke the silence in a loud and cheerful voice. "'If anyone has any use for my left eyebrow,' he said, "'he can have it. Colonel Ducroix, do accept my left eyebrow. It's the kind of thing that might come in useful any day.' and he gravely tore off one of his swarthy Assyrian brows, bringing about half his brown forehead with it, and politely offered it to the colonel, who stood crimson and speechless with rage. "'If I had known,' he spluttered, "'that I was acting for a poltroon who pads himself to fight?' "'Oh, I know, I know,' said the Marquis, recklessly throwing various parts of himself right and left about the field. "'You are making a mistake.' "'But it can't be explained just now. "'I tell you the train has come into the station.' "'Yes,' said Dr. Bull fiercely, "'and the train shall go out of the station. "'It shall go out without you. "'We know well enough for what devil's work.' "'The mysterious Marquis lifted his hands with a desperate gesture. "'He was a strange scarecrow standing there in the sun "'with half his old face peeled off "'and half another face glaring and grinning from underneath. "'Will you drive me mad?' he cried. "'The train!' "'You shall not go by the train,' said Syme firmly, and grasped his sword. The wild figure turned towards Syme, and seemed to be gathering itself for a sublime effort before speaking. "'You great, fat, blasted, blear-eyed, blundering, thundering, brainless, godforsaken, doddering, damned fool!' he said without taking breath. "'You great, silly, pink-faced, tow-headed turnip! You—' "'You shall not go by this train!' repeated Syme. "'And why the infernal blazes,' roared the other, "'should I want to go by the train?' "'We know all,' said the professor sternly. "'You are going to Paris to throw a bomb.' "'Going to Jericho to throw a jabberwock!' cried the other, tearing his hair, which came off easily. "'Have you all got softening of the brain that you don't realize what I am? "'Do you really think I wanted to catch that train? Twenty Paris trains might go by for me. Damn Paris trains!' "'Then what did you care about?' began the professor. 
what did I care about? I didn't care about catching the train. I cared about whether the train caught me, and now, by God, it has caught me. I regret to inform you, said Syme with restraint, that your remarks convey no impression to my mind. Perhaps if you were to remove the remains of your original forehead, and some portion of what once was your chin, your meaning would become clearer. Mental lucidity fulfills itself in many ways. What do you mean by saying that the train has caught you? It may be literary fancy, but somehow I feel that it ought to mean something. It means everything, said the other, and the end of everything. Sunday has us now in the hollow of his hand. Us? repeated the professor, as if stupefied. What do you mean by us? The police, of course, said the Marquis, and tore off his scalp and half his face. The head which emerged was the blonde, well-brushed, smooth-haired head which is common in the English constabulary, but the face was terribly pale. I am Inspector Ratcliffe, he said, with a sort of haste that verged on harshness. My name is pretty well known to the police, and I can see well enough that you belong to them, but if there is any doubt about my position, I have a card. And he began to pull a blue card from his pocket. The professor gave a tired gesture. Oh, don't show it us, he said wearily. We've got enough of them to equip a paper chase. The little man named Bull had, like many men who seemed to be of a mere vivacious vulgarity, sudden movements of good taste. Here he certainly saved the situation. In the midst of this staggering transformation scene, he stepped forward with all the gravity and responsibility of a second, and addressed the two seconds of the Marquis. "'Gentlemen,' he said, "'we all owe you a serious apology, but I assure you that you have not been made the victims of such a low joke as you imagine, or indeed of anything undignified in a man of honour. You have not wasted your time. You have helped us to save the world. We are not buffoons, but very desperate men at war with a vast conspiracy. A secret society of anarchists is hunting us like hares. Not such unfortunate madmen as may here or there throw a bomb through starvation or German philosophy, but a rich and powerful and fanatical church, a church of Eastern pessimism, which holds it holy to destroy mankind like vermin. How hard they hunt us you can gather from the fact that we are driven to such disguises as those for which I apologize, and to such pranks as this one by which you suffer. The younger second of the Marquis, a short man with a black moustache, bowed politely and said, Of course I accept the apology, but you will in your turn forgive me if I decline to follow you further into your difficulties and permit myself to say good morning. The sight of an acquaintance and distinguished fellow-townsmen coming to pieces in the open air is unusual, and upon the whole sufficient for one day. Colonel Ducroix, I would in no way influence your actions, but if you feel with me that our present society is a little abnormal, I am now going to walk back to the town. Colonel Ducroix moved mechanically, but then tugged abruptly at his white moustache, and broke out, no, by George, I won't. If these gentlemen are really in a mess with a lot of low wreckers like that, I'll see them through it. I have fought for France, and it is hard if I can't fight for civilization. Dr. Bull took off his hat and waved it, cheering as at a public meeting. Don't make too much noise, said Inspector Ratcliffe, 
Sunday may hear you. Sunday, cried Bull, and dropped his hat. Yes, retorted Ratcliffe, he may be with them. With whom? asked Syme. With the people out of that train, said the other. What you say seems utterly wild, began Syme. Why, as a matter of fact, but my God, he cried out suddenly, like a man who sees an explosion a long way off. By God, if this is true, the whole bally lot of us on the Anarchist Council were against anarchy. Every born man was a detective, except the President and his personal secretary. What can it mean? Mean, said the new policeman with incredible violence. It means that we are struck dead. Don't you know Sunday? Don't you know that his jokes are always so big and simple that one has never thought of them? Can you think of anything more like Sunday than this, that he should put all his powerful enemies on the Supreme Council and then take care that it was not supreme? I tell you he has bought every trust, he has captured every cable, he has control of every railway line, especially of that railway line. And he pointed a shaking finger towards the small wayside station. The whole movement was controlled by him, half the world was ready to rise for him, but there were just five people, perhaps, who would have resisted him, and the old devil put them on the Supreme Council to waste their time in watching each other. Idiots that we are, he planned the whole of our idiocies. Sunday knew that the professor would chase Syme through London, and that Syme would find me in France, and he was combining great masses of capital, and seizing great lines of telegraphy while we five idiots were running after each other like a lot of confounded babies playing blind man's buff. "'Well?' asked Syme with a sort of steadiness. "'Well,' replied the other with sudden serenity, "'he has found us playing blind man's buff today in a field of great rustic beauty and extreme solitude. He has probably captured the world. It only remains to him to capture this field,' and all the fools in it. And since you really want to know what was my objection to the arrival of that train, I will tell you. My objection was that Sunday, or his secretary, has just this moment got out of it. Syme uttered an involuntary cry, and they all turned their eyes towards the far-off station. It was quite true that a considerable bulk of people seemed to be moving in their direction, but they were too distant to be distinguished in any way. It was a habit of the late Marquis de Saint-Eustache, said the new policeman, producing a leather case, always to carry a pair of opera glasses. Either the President or the Secretary is coming after us with that mob. They have caught us in a nice, quiet place, where we are under no temptations to break our oaths by calling the police. Dr. Bull, I have a suspicion that you will see better through these than through your own highly decorative spectacles." He handed the field-glasses to the doctor, who immediately took off his spectacles and put the apparatus to his eyes. "'It cannot be as bad as you say,' said the professor, somewhat shaken. "'There are a good number of them, certainly, but they may easily be ordinary tourists.' "'Do ordinary tourists,' asked Bull, with the field-glasses to his eyes, "'wear black masks halfway down the face?' Syme almost tore the glasses out of his hand and looked through them. Most men in the advancing mob really looked ordinary enough, but it was quite true that two or three of the leaders in front wore black half-masks almost down to their mouths. This disguise is very complete, especially at such a distance, 
and Syme found it impossible to conclude anything from the clean-shaven jaws and chins of the men talking in front. But presently, as they talked, they all smiled, and one of them smiled on one side. End of chapter 10、BetMGM、has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800 Gambler in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.